You're listening to The Public Discourse, a podcast by the Baha'i Community of Canada's Office of Public Affairs. This episode is part of the mini-series, Rebuilding Together, where we look to the future and the kind of society we want to create after coronavirus. This conversation features Jeff Cameron talking with Dr. Sharzat Sabet, a research fellow with the Institute for Public Knowledge at New York University, and Akash Maharaj, CEO of the Mosaic Institute in Toronto. They explore how principles and concepts like oneness, love, justice, and equality can guide us through this time and how our commonalities can be reconciled with our differences to achieve greater social solidarity. Well, I'm delighted to be joined on the public discourse by Akash Maharaj and Sharsad Sabat. This is the first episode of our new series on Rebuilding Together, where we begin to look to the future beyond COVID-19. We've been joined before by Akash, and this is our first time with Sharsad on the podcast. So I wonder if you could brief, uh, each briefly introduce yourselves. Maybe Sharsad first. Sure. Um, my name is Sharzad Sabet. I'm a political scientist. I'm at New York University in New York City. Um, my current research focuses primarily on the conceptual and philosophical tensions around social identity, as well as on the intersections of these more conceptual tensions with empirical research in social psychology. I'm also a new mom. Uh, I have a now eight-month-old baby girl. So that also um, is keeping me pretty busy and also pretty entertained these days. I'm so glad you could join us, Sharsa. Thank you. And you're joining us from Vancouver. Is that right? I am, yes. I've, um, I've been back in British Columbia for a few months now. Because of the pandemic, we, we, I came here with my baby and husband, and it's actually where I was born and grew up. So it's, it's nice to be home. Wonderful. And Akash, for our faithful listeners, you will need no introduction, but perhaps uh, you could introduce yourselves for everyone else. For your faithless listeners, perhaps. <laughs> um, thank you for inviting me, Jeff. I'm, it's, I'm delighted to be back. I'm Akash Maharaj. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of the Mosaic Institute. Mosaic is a Toronto-based not-for-profit organization that works on peace building and international conflict resolution. It operates primarily through track two diplomacy, which means bringing together ordinary people, in particular members of diaspora communities, drawn from opposite sides of international conflict, brokering dialogue between them, and through that dialogue, trying to build a sense of mutual understanding, as well as strategies for peaceful coexistence. Our work is based on the very Canadian ideal of the, that, the sense that we are all better off together, um, and sometimes we just need a bit of help discovering that truth. Well, thank you again for joining us. Akash, I think I'll start with you. Uh, when, when we talked last time, we were uh, focused on questions of leadership and public policy. And towards the end, we began to discuss how we should be rethinking and rebuilding after this crisis. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, this new series of the public discourse is focused more directly on these questions. You know, a crisis like the one we're experiencing can have the effect of helping us to clarify our shared values. It can reveal the ways in which our actions, both individually and collectively, fall short of those values. 
So I wanted to ask you, as we emerge from the immediate lockdown and begin to contemplate what is next for our society, what are the core principles you think need to be guiding our thinking? Do you know, I think that's a very good and very deep question, because although the pandemic has caused virtually everyone to pause and take stock of the questions such as, what do we do next? What does the new normal look like? How have our institutions served us or failed us? I think that as a society, as well as as individuals, we have not taken enough time to take yet another step back and think about what are the core underlying values and principles that should be guiding us through this really uncharted territory. There are a few that strike me. One, <laughs> one is a bit of a cliché, but I hope that we can look beyond the cliché. And that is that the pandemic has revealed to us the fact that our interest as individuals is utterly entwined with the well-being of every other member of society. The second is that I think we have to do a better job of cultivating Canadian society in particular, and all societies around the world, as genuine meritocracies. We hear the term meritocracy thrown around a lot, um, but and often it is used to say, it's, it's often used by people who want to say, I have earned what I have, and therefore I should get to keep what I have. I think that is looking at meritocracy from the wrong end. A meritocracy should be one in which everyone has an equal opportunity to succeed, but it also has to be one in which those who benefit the most from meritocracy bear proportionately the greatest responsibility for supporting that meritocracy. The third, I think, is, is if not a uniquely Canadian principle, I think a characteristically Canadian principle, and that is that we need to find the courage to see ourselves as we are rather than as we might imagine ourselves to be. We have become, over the course of my lifetime, a significantly more unequal society, um, and that risks becoming structure. There's no way to address those problems unless we recognize there's a problem. I would say that the, the fourth is one that runs against our character as Canadians, and that is that we need to summon the courage to be willing to embrace revolutionary change and not evolutionary change. We are an evolutionary society. We have had rebellions, but we've never had revolutions. And Canadians are inherently conservative. By that, I don't mean right-wing, I mean cautious. They are suspicious of dramatic change. We are aware of the cost and the risks. But I think that we have arrived at a moment in history where our institutions, especially during this time of trial, have demonstrated that they are not well suited to take us through crises. And this is not the last crisis we will face. Um, if we are to be prepared for the next crisis, we have to be prepared to run the risk of re fundamentally remaking our institutions, or we will face the certainty of being saddled with institutions that are fundamentally ill-suited to leading a pluralistic society in the 21st century. And I suppose the last thing I would say is that we need to fight the impulse to govern ourselves and to make our decisions based on what has happened in the last 24-hour news cycle. The problems that now beset us are the are questions that will be judged by history and not by the nightly news and certainly not by tweets. And part of, the, of, of that attitude of looking to the judgment of history means a willingness to sacrifice in our own lifetimes. Well, that's a great way to start us off. Thank you, Akash.
I want to pick up on a few of the themes you mentioned around uh, interdependence and equity uh, to ask Sharsad uh, a, a question along those lines. You know, in the past several months, we've experienced this paradoxical situation where we have been confronted with our essential oneness as a human family, as well as by the deep divisions that continue to exist in our society. A pandemic is itself a kind of metaphor for our interdependence. And yet its effects, as you mentioned, Akash, have not been felt evenly. Canada has not systematically collected race-based data, but anecdotal reporting indicates that marginalized groups, uh, and we know migrant workers, have been among the worst affected. At the same time, we've seen this resurgence in protests calling for racial justice and police reform. So within that context, Sharsad, I know that these are questions that you think about uh, at a conceptual and philosophical level, which have much, which have direct an, uh, application to the challenge, challenges we face as a society. What would you say about how we re we need to rethink the relationship between our commonalities and our differences? Well, let me say first of all, thanks so much, Jeff, um, for the invitation to participate in this great conversation. Yeah, it's been an especially um, paradoxical and I think revealing time in the sense that you describe, certainly, and as Akash noted at the outset, at the level of our physical or material well-being, our interdependence as a humanity could not have been made more obvious than it's been made in the last few months. But, you know, I think a global crisis of this magnitude also amplifies our deeper commonalities, our um, response to death and disease and injustice, our basic yearnings as human beings for nobility and hope, our uh, susceptibilities to the stirrings of justice and, and solidarity around us. But on the other hand, um, as you also point out, these same months have also magnified how deeply our differences matter. You know, structural inequalities and, and systemic racism, as you mentioned, have tragically shaped who's been most affected by the coronavirus. The murder of George Floyd in the United States has reminded us yet again um, of the devastating institutionalized racism that runs really through virtually every facet of our societies from the criminal justice system certainly, but also to maternal health care, to um, environmental concerns. You know, I think it might seem obvious um, to many of us that the recognition of our commonalities should help somehow redress these ravages of our differences. But in fact, in both thought and in practice, reconciling our oneness with our diversity has been quite an enduring challenge. A big part of that problem, I think, is that the concepts that have come to represent our shared humanity are not up to this challenge. They're either distorted at worst, or they're inadequate or at least incomplete at best. At the more um, distorted end of the spectrum, think for example of what the term cosmopolitanism has come to represent, uh, certainly in public discourse, but also to some extent in political philosophy. The idea of cosmopolitanism um, is traditionally associated with the notion of our shared humanity. But the term has come increasingly to represent basically a form of elitism. It's seen by many as yet 
one more exclusionary tribal identity. In this case, the um, exclusive tribe of choice, so to speak, for an often aloof, hypermobile, hyperprivileged, um, typically urban elite. So paradoxically, I think to meaningfully recognize our diversity, what we need to do is actually lean much, much more heavily into our oneness to cultivate a genuine and deeply felt universal identity or, or sense of universal belonging. To appreciate this, this point, this perhaps counterintuitive point, I think it helps to think of those with whom we share personal bonds of love, bonds of deep empathy or solidarity. Certainly we're moved to honor and protect um, the universal aspects of their personhood, but we're also moved to meaningfully recognize their distinctiveness. We're attentive to the particular burdens they've borne. We want to understand the full contours of their experiences and their particular perspectives. These, um, let's call them empathic recognitions of difference, which will be essential, I think, to addressing you know, the catastrophic inequalities and injustices we face. These meaningful recognitions of our diversity flow much more naturally, I think, from thicker, um, more feelingful bonds of identity and love than they do from leaner, rationally derived, and much more emotionally sober commitments to abstract human equality. Thank you, Sharasad. You seem to be tending towards the role that, that love or empathy plays in helping us to, um, to feel a closer connection to each other not only in spite of our differences, but sometimes because of them too. I want to continue on this point with, with Akash. Akash, you lead the Mosaic Institute, which as you mentioned, works on bringing people together to talk about their differences. And you have been convening an ongoing dialogue about race relations in Ontario. So I know that the report is not yet out, but I wonder, what insights are coming through in this work that you think can help us to navigate some of the issues that Sharsad has pointed to? Um, I, I think Sharsad phrased the challenge very well. Um, and if, if I may rephrase it from my perspective, the idea of who we are, um, whom we recognize as friends, whom we recognize as one of us and, and, and one of them, uh, often amongst people like myself who live this and work in it and talk about it, it's often phrased and thought of as an intellectual exercise. What are the shared rights and responsibilities? What are the political aspirations that, that bind us together? Um, what, are the, what are the documents that we have contributed to that have, and, and through doing so, shared in the authorship of the social contract that defines us as a people? And I think those are very important, but they are dry. Um, and ultimately the question of who are we, indeed who am I, are fundamentally emotional questions rather than rational questions. So I think she, I, I agree with her that we need to find a way to deepen the sense of shared identity that we all have beyond, a, beyond the transactional identity of being participants in, a, in an economy or the the political ideas of having a set of shared principles that, that bind us together. 
ultimately not only are we emotional creatures, but that our connection to one another is deeply personal. So the, the challenge, I suppose, in a, a large, diverse and pluralistic society is how do we cultivate that sense of emotional as well as rational bond between ourselves, um, especially with people who are very, very different from ourselves. So I, I suppose after, as, as we move out of coronavirus, the question is how do we as societies find ways to engage individuals and communities and nations in shared activities that makes or helps us all to feel that we've achieved something together because we are someone together. And I think, I will say in very broad terms, it is one of the reasons why I think our democratic institutions need a fundamental overhaul. Because those are the institutions really that should be bringing Canadians together. But increasingly, they are institutions and practices that drive us apart, especially in a country where it is possible to win an absolute majority with 35% of the vote. Instead, I think our institution, we must find ways for new institutions to make democracy more than just a way of electing governments, but a way of actually governing ourselves. If there were ways for Canadians from different walks of life, different ethnicities, different cultures, to join hands with one another, to work with one another, to disagree you know, passionately with one another, but to come to a conclusion with one another that shapes our country together, I think that would cultivate, that would not just demonstrate the political ideals that define us as Canadians, that would cultivate the emotional bond that makes us, that makes us one people. But I don't think that we can take for granted that that is going to happen because we're Canadians and we mean well. The business of inclusion is as much a skill as it is a, a set of ideals, um, and it's a skill that has to be practiced or it will be lost. Yeah, this theme of our emotional connections to each other as being as important as what we might hold to be intellectual or idealistic connections to each other is one I'm glad you brought out, Akash. I mean, it's been an interesting characteristic of these protests that have swept not only the United States and Canada, but many countries around the world that they were in a way set off uh, in, in part by, by video that exposed a kind of reality that was experienced by uh, one part of the population in the United States and perhaps in other countries to, uh, to, to the general public. It was as if a veil was being uh, removed from, from the eyes of society about the way in which uh, uh, in which one part of the population was being treated differently. We saw similar videos emerge in, in Canada and I think uh, contributed to a general rising of consciousness of the, the disparity that exists between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people in Canada. And so it's been interesting that at this time of isolation that the internet, which notoriously kind of segments us into our individual worlds has also kind of connected us emotionally too around an issue of profound injustice. But then maybe the question is, what's next? I mean, how, do, how does this then emerge from the digital realm uh, into, into reality? Shar said, I wonder if you had any reflections on that. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great question. Actually, I'm, I think one thing we have to sort of flip in our minds is this idea that our common humanity, the oneness of humankind, cosmopolitanism, whatever label you want to give it, 
that its domain is something beyond our borders or that it's across our borders or it's some transnational space um, that the masses of humanity don't have access to. I think that's a complete um, distortion of the concept. I think the oneness of hum humankind is something that ex expresses itself and should find expression in our neighborhoods and the very textured, colorful, concrete experiences that all of us have, whether we hold international passports or not. I mean, I, we each speak from our own experience. Um, I'm a member of the Baha'i community, and I think um, it's actually quite remarkable how these, these kind of deep, longstanding intellectual tensions between the local and the universal, um, to a large extent, find resolution in the activities of the Baha'i community. I mean, the, the foundational principle of the Baha'i faith, for anyone who knows anything about it, is the oneness of humankind. But the kinds of activities that this gives rise to for Baha'is are actually very local. They're focused on neighborhoods. They're um, focused on the particular problems and challenges that uh, populations feel in their very concrete, immediate circumstances. So I think one step we can take is to sort of dissociate this notion of our uh, universality or our oneness from something that's abstract or something that's outside of our concrete experience. We can find elements of our common humanity um, with people that are in our immediate environment. In fact, I think that's where we should look. We should look to make friends with the people around us. And, and, and that's not to say, and I, I go back to your question, Jeff, it's not to say um, that these kinds of universalist forces like the internet and, and the erasure of um, barriers to communication don't contribute to our consciousness as a, a common humanity. Of course they do, and they're essential. And I think they've also kind of irreversibly changed our consciousness as members of the human race. But they complement um, in a very tight and dynamic way the things that go on locally around us. So I think we need, we need to kind of not just adjust, but maybe revolutionize the way we think about things like cosmopolitanism and realize that these things have just as much of a, a relevance and a application at the grassroots in our national discourse as they do in our international discourse or on the floor of the United Nations. Thanks, Sharsad. I, I want to now bring this back to Akash as well, just reflecting on this, this point Sharsad is bringing forward about the, the ways in which cosmopolitanism or universalism finds expression in our own neighborhoods or our, our own communities. And to return to this issue of race relations in Ontario, which I know Mosaic has been studying, is this a theme that has come through in the study you've been carrying out? And if not, what other themes are, are coming out about how people are perceiving the challenge of race relations in Ontario and um, ways in which we might foster more harmonious race relations? Um, well, what we are finding is that race relations in Canada are much more, I would say, lumpy than people might expect. There's a sense that there, that there is an ethnic majority, uh, people largely from Europe, and ethnic minorities on the other side. And 
yes, certainly one can divide the population that way, but the experience of different ethnic minority groups varies radically. There have been some groups that have been significantly more successful than others, um, and there are tensions. It would be a mistake for anyone to believe that racial tensions in Canada are purely tensions between the uh, the majority um, the, the majority and the collective minorities. In fact, there are tensions between ethnic minority groups as well, and those tensions tend to be the strongest between groups that have been relatively successful and groups that have been relatively less successful. We tend to we tend to replicate. Unfortunately, there is a sense that I'm getting that many people who cry out for justice are too quick to define justice as justice for themselves um, and are often blind to the... They are alert to the injustice that is being done to them but are often blind to the injustices they are doing to other people. And I think that is... That will become a growing issue for our country if it is if it is not adequately addressed. That better race relations in Canada also means better relations between minority groups as well as between the majority groups and the minority groups collectively. I think that in addition, this is a particularly Canadian challenge, our country has not had replacement fertility rates since 1971. So as a result, our entire population stability and our entire population growth is largely a product of immigration. I think that most Canadians know that, but perhaps are not quick to see where, what that means. And that is the fundamental question, fundamental often unspoken question, is whose, whose country is this anyway? And the answer to that is it's at once all of our country and no one's country. And I'm not sure, uh, and when I say no one's country, no one group's country. And while that represents a kind of political ideal, it is difficult to live out in, in practice. I think that it's a challenge that is that is within our grasp. And I I agree that that recognizing our common humanity is meaningless unless we give application to that common humanity. And that always begins in our immediate environment. Um, to say that we recognize our common humanity, but we don't do anything about it, and we don't do anything about it with people we interact with the most, well, that's just abject hypocrisy. That is retreating to a sterile kind of intellectualized idea that there is something called equal dignity. But unless we're prepared to give the, the people sitting next to us their share of equal dignity, then we are not cosmopolitan. Um, we are not discovering our shared humanity. We are, in fact, running away from our neighbors through the agency of, of abstractions. Well, there's some very perceptive comments on justice you made at the beginning of your remarks, Akash, and then your connection to immigration sets up uh, a question I wanted to ask Sharsad in light of, you know, I think what we were already seeing before this pandemic, which was a, a rise in uh, nationalism and xenophobia, xenophobia around the world. I don't think Canada was unaffected by that trend, uh, despite the fact that our rates of immigration are relatively high and enjoy a, a significant degree of public support still. 
But yet one of the responses to this pandemic has been the closure of borders, the temporary halt of refugee arrivals, new barriers to the international movement of non-citizens. So there have been significant new moves towards closure, which in a way began before the pandemic, but found a new justification in the pandemic itself. And so just building off your remarks, I wonder, Sharsad, um, how, how might we think about the notion of global solidarity coming out of this crisis in, in light of the very tendencies and, um, and movements that Akash has just mentioned? Yeah, that's a very important question, I think. Um, and significantly, as, as you point out, these movements towards closure um, precede the pandemic and, and whatever you know, pandemic or health-related reasons we might have for them. We've been seeing these movements typically, again, as, as you mentioned, um, accompanied by xenophobia and, and often identity-related anxieties across the Western world now for several years, whether um, it's Britain's vote to leave the European Union or um, in the drive in the United States to build an actual physical wall along the southern border. One of the interesting uh, connections that I think is expressed in these cases is the close relationship between identity on the one hand and a sense of security or a sense of safety on the other. Interestingly, um, what I'm finding in my research, which, which draws heavily on social and political psychology, is that only an all-encompassing or universal collective identity um, delivers a context of deep and fundamental security to all of our other particular bounded social identities. And I think there are good um, logical or conceptual reasons for this. First of all, unlike virtually every other social identity, a universal collective identity is unbounded. It literally comes with no other. It has no other. As a social identity, it's also completely unique because the parameters of its inclusion are not, or at least they need not be, socially constructed. So as we come out of this pandemic, um, whatever that might look like, as we, as we come out of this crisis, which has so dramatically um, exposed our interconnectedness, I think one of the key questions we need to ask ourselves is, how can we cultivate the fundamentally secure sense of belonging that we crave as human beings, given these, I think to a large extent now, irreversible conditions of deep interdependence? I think our response to that question um, has to be different than the kinds of answers we've, we've given to it in the past. Akash, I know what it turned to you. Um, picking up on this discourse around identity that Sharsad has referenced, and also some of your previous comments about how we talk to each other, I think for anyone who's been paying attention to social media or Twitter or the um, many of the newspapers we might read, there has, there's a current conversation about how we talk to each other, including the nature of free speech. And in a way, this is a conversation that has been happening for, for centuries, um, but it takes on some new characteristics today. Somehow in order to continue working together to build a better society, we are going to have to learn how to engage in good faith public conversation where 
you know, our intellectuals are not drawing tribal boundaries around themselves in the way that Sharsav has referenced. So since promoting dialogue is something central to your own work, what thoughts do you have about the principles and approaches that can allow us to have constructive conversations on the challenges of our time without resorting to these kind of tribal disputes that are sometimes featured in our magazines and newspapers? Um, I certainly one of the questions of our time. Um, I remember when the internet was just coming of age <laughs> and there was a blind assumption that simply because we would be able to speak to one another more easily, um, more efficiently, um, more cheaply, that it would of necessity create stronger bonds between people around the world. And that clearly is not the case. It, um, the, the internet has simply amplified both the good and the bad in society and has accelerated it. It has aided those who wish to bring people together and it has aided those who wish to drive people apart. It is like a force of nature. It is utterly amoral. It is not immoral, but it is amoral. It is a power that can be used either for good or for ill. So I suppose the question is, in this context, how do we steer things towards that power being harnessed and used for, for constructive purposes? I guess the last thing I would say is that there is a dangerous assumption <laughs> that um, that the people who use freedom of speech to pull other people down, that they're just bad people. And we're not bad people. Therefore, all we have to do is not be like that and it'll be fine. But the truth is, there are no supervillains lurking in volcano lairs, stroking white cats. That's just not the way the world works. Um, the evil that is abroad is evil that is within ourselves. And it is often not, and the opposite of evil isn't, or the opposite of good isn't necessarily evil. The opposite of good can be good intentions. The ability to bring people together, the ability to engage with one another, that is a skill. And it is a skill that goes beyond simply meaning well. Often I hear people think, or say, um, I have nothing against that group, those other people, um, therefore everything should be fine. You may feel you have nothing against them, but if you, if you don't have the empathy, the skills, and the practice of dealing with people who are not like yourself, there's a good chance you're going to treat those people as if you have something against them, even if you don't know it. The internet, especially things like Twitter, which I think is just a cesspit, has encourage people to make pronouncements, to um, announce their opinions to the world, or to display what they had for lunch. But the truth is, even the greatest amongst us has far more to learn from other people than he or she has to teach other people. And good dialogue begins and ends with listening, not speaking. And I appreciate you emphasizing the personal responsibility that is implicit in building a healthy public discourse. You know, I was hearing echoes of this, the Solzhenitsyn quote about the, the line between good and evil running through the heart of every man uh, in, in your own remarks that dividing the world into the good and the evil is not a productive way to develop a healthy public discourse, but rather reflecting on 
the posture and orientation we bring to it ourselves is the best way to promote what we're looking for. And, and even as we look at the evils of the past, I think that often encourages people to adopt a kind of self-righteousness. I'm not like those people who committed those terrible crimes in the past. It should instill in us a, sen a deep sense of humility because those people who committed the worst crimes of the past to a person, they thought they were doing the right thing. And we think we're doing the right thing. We have to have the humility to admit that to ourselves, to admit that to others, and to be able to see other points of view, even if we feel certain of our of ourselves. I, I'm one of the reasons that I'm a huge fan of democracy in practice as well as in theory isn't just because I think it is the best instrument towards just and prosperous societies. I, I think it is. But also because it emphasizes the fact that the wisdom of society lies in the many and not in the few. We often like, and I, I have my individual heroes, people like, like Martin Luther King Jr. or Mahatma Gandhi or Nelson Mandela. Um, they were all great men. But for every Gandhi, there's a Stalin. When we, when we invest that much power in individuals, we are playing a dangerous game because Gandhi and Stalin might be on opposite ends of the spectrum, but they were equally convinced that they were doing the right thing. Sharsad, uh, you recently wrote a piece where you talk about the need for our intellectual frameworks to incorporate both love and justice in the way we think about our society, a theme that I think resonates with some of Akash's comments just now. Um, and something that seems like a particular challenge right now for the reasons we've been discussing, where it seems like to stand for justice often means opposing someone else. Could you talk a little bit more about how a closer reconciliation of love and justice can help us to navigate this process of rethinking and rebuilding? Sure. Yeah, it's a premise um, of our prevailing intellectual frameworks that love and justice diverge in important ways. You know, justice, we think, um, must be impartial and universal. It should be accorded to all regardless of difference. But love is, is thought to be different. The domain of love and belonging is thought to be um, necessarily partial and particular. It's thought to be bounded by the limits of, of the conventional social identities we've been talking about, things like kin, race, religion, ethnicity. I think this disjuncture in the way we think about these two concepts has served us very poorly. Realizing the universality of justice, the um, often gut-wrenching, sacrificial work, for example, of redressing centuries-long systemic oppression, depends very much, I think, on also realizing the universality of love. Uh, to put it perhaps a little differently, the kinds of feelings and actions that the realization of a genuine justice um, requires of us come much more readily and naturally when they're motivated by deeper connections of solidarity and love. We know this again, um, to reference our earlier conversation, we know this from our own more personal lives. We know that love sustains selfless action. It wills us to forgo 
um, comfort and privilege. It helps us to feel the suffering and the burdens of others as our own. So, of course, uh, justice can't be partial or particular or preferential. But I think it'll continue to fall short of that ideal until we also release, so to speak, concepts like love and identity and solidarity from the confines of their partiality. And this, I think, um, will become even more true as the pandemic exposes and exacerbates the deep structural um, inequalities and, and injustices around us. Well, that is a great point to draw us close to an end of our conversation. I wonder if either of you have any final closing reflections to share before we finish. Akash, do you have any final thoughts to share? Mm -hmm. This has been a fascinating conversation. <laughs> I have to say, especially for me, and I, I say that because I'm, I'm conscious of my own shortcomings in this discussion. I'm, I am the sort of person, I, by my nature, I have always valued reason above passion. I, I think of myself as a thoughtful person, um, and I think of, of myself as someone who is able to take hotly contested issues and deal with them dispassionately. And it can be difficult for me, with, with that, that being my nature, to come to terms with the fact that we are all creatures of emotion before we are creatures of reason, and that, um, that systems and models of who we are and what we are that appeal only to the, heart, to the mind and not to the heart will never have any purchase in our society. Um, but I think that there is a kind of, much as, um, as Shahzad was saying, we can have justice and love, I think that we can have societies that combine reason and passion. And that is to say, if we, if we are able to build societies that are just, that appeal to our rational selves, a recognition that we are better off together than we are apart, and that we will prosper more if our neighbours prosper more, rather than lose if our neighbours prosper. I think that's the kind of society that applies both to reason and to emotion, because we, we then become intellectually, emotionally, and dare I say it, spiritually invested, not just in that society, but in the well-being of one another. Um, Thanks, Akash. Sharsa, any closing thoughts? Sure. Um... I guess just what I'll say is that I, especially looking ahead to the to the podcast series that we're kicking off with this episode, um, what I hope we take we 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 kind of take with us to the other side of this pandemic again, whatever that might look like, is a renewed sense of intellectual courage. I, I think this crisis has, as we've been discussing, on the one hand, um, exposed very vividly the limits of our prevailing structures and ideas. And on the other hand, of course, it's also presented a critical opportunity for us to fundamentally rethink some of these ideas um, and assumptions and structures. At a moment like this, I think, I think it's important to continually remind ourselves that so many of the ideas and structures of thought we take for granted today were formulated and championed in a context where they seemed completely out of bounds and completely out of reach. So I hope that we, and, and I should clarify, when I say we here, I mean 
all of us, every one of us as, as protagonists of the society we're building, I hope that we have the courage to allow ourselves to imagine the world, not as it's been, but as it might be, to kind of dive headfirst into the social and intellectual adventure that I think awaits us after this very intense period of suffering and uncertainty and, and turmoil. Let's not be afraid. Let's have the courage to free our imaginations and see where they take us. Well, I don't think I could have asked for a more perceptive and insightful pair of guests for this podcast. You've set the bar very high for our future episodes. Uh, Sharsat and Akash, thank you so much for joining us for this uh, first episode of our new series of The Public Discourse. Thanks, John. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you. Mr. Lightfoot. You have been listening to The Public Discourse, a podcast by the Baha'i Community of Canada's Office of Public Affairs. You can learn more about the Baha'i faith at baha'i.ca and follow the work of our office at oba.baha'i.ca where you will find links to our social media handles on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube.